Hello and welcome to the Writer's Cookbook Podcast. I'm Christina Adams. And I'm Ellie Beth. And we're here serving you with your weekly slice of writing advice. For anyone who is watching on YouTube this week, you may notice that Christina has joined us in her dressing gown. It's not a dressing gown, it's just like the world's most gigantic scarf. It's to protect my neck because I'm poorly. It's a very lovely scarf, to be fair, but don't Thank say you. poorly when you're secretly an old lady. <laughs> uh, week, the truth is out, I've been caught. I've been <laughs> caught. I'm an old lady in the body of a 30-year-old. I called you out on the podcast. It's it's real now. I know. It's uh, out there. <laughs> anyway, this week I'm going to dust off my history degree and pretend it's useful again and delve into the life of another badass woman, Miss Beatrix Potter. Yeah, I'm a massive fan of Beatrix Potter, so I am very intrigued to find out more because beyond the fact that she published Peter Rabbit initially when it was rejected, I don't know that much about her. Ooh, there's a lot more to her than Peter Rabbit, I can assure you. In that case then, let's get started. First and foremost, then, Beatrix was born on 28th of July, 1866, and lived until 22nd of December, 1943, so she died aged 77. She had a relatively wealthy family, grew up in Manchester, had some great private schooling with in-house governesses, and was quite close with a lot of them. She actually stayed friends with her final um, governess, Annie Moore, for most of her life and was very close with her children. That's really cute because you don't think that's going to be a thing. You think, oh, you're done. Off you go. Kind of like we have with teachers now. So I like that idea of it becoming this lifelong thing. I suppose it's a lot more personable when the person's practically living with you. Valid point. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) She kept many small animals when she was a child. Mice, rabbits, hedgehogs and bats. Hang on. Hang on. Bats. Bats. I mean, I didn't even know that was legal, to be fair, let alone someone would want to do that. I mean, I don't think she kept them in, like, her bedroom or something. I think, like, it was probably maybe back boxes outside or stuff like that. But there's a, it, you're classing them as a pet here, though, that, like, as them. opposed you to... You them and give them a house. Is that, does that not make them a pet? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Although I suppose that would depend, because does that mean if you're feeding wild birds, they're your pets as well? Listen, the birds love me, okay? (laughs) She was known to even take these pets on holiday with her. That's how closely she cared for them. That's an interesting one, taking a bat or a hedgehog on holiday. I didn't say it was the bat. Stop focusing on the bat. Okay, (laughs) taking the hedgehog on holiday. That, because... are very good. They are, but they're very temperature sensitive. Because we were looking at getting one before we got Millie. They have to have a temperature of like 20 degrees or something constantly. Unless they're like English hedgehogs. Because a lot of the pet hedgehogs these days are African ones. Yeah, but this was 20 years ago, dear. Valid point. I'll shut up. (laughs) They, as a family, spent a lot of holidays in Dalgies in Scotland, which I have probably pronounced wrong, but that's going to be another theme of today's show. (laughs) But she would often sketch and explore the countryside. She kept a diary from the age of 14, which she wrote in code, which I think is also pretty badass. Yeah, although I'd be intrigued to know why she felt the need to write it in code. Like, who did she think was going to read it? Did she have particularly nosy parents? 
most likely, but I mean, sometimes it's fun to challenge your brain like that, I guess. Mm, it turns out it was just like a letter for letter swap kind of code. Oh, so okay. It wasn't, it wasn't the kind of thing we all did. Yeah, we all did that as a kid. She did it from 14 up until well into her adulthood, which I think is really nice. Until she oh, was wow. busy with sheep. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, she did not marry until 1913, age 47, which was very unusual for the time, as mm. I'm sure you know. People were sent off into marriages to have kids as young as possible. Did she have any kids? She did not. I didn't think so. But, like I said, she was very close with Annie Moore's kids. Um, I thought you were going to say she was very close to the sheep, then, not going to lie. <laughs> I, I didn't get into the sheep thing, maybe. I don't know. I mean, no judgment here. But... Anyway, I like to call her a rebel spinster. I like that way of looking at it. I like that. She, it's got um, a ring to it. It does, yeah. You can only hope to achieve those kind of lofty heights, right? Totally. <laughs> she enjoyed science. Almost every mm-hmm. branch of scientific uh, study. Well, every branch of natural history, should I say. But not astronomy. Didn't like that yeah. one. Why not? That's boring. Uh, I like astronomy. I mean, I like astronomy with the technology we've got these days. I think it's more interesting because mm. there's a lot more to explore and there's a lot more known. But back then, I can imagine there's not much to do with astronomy. But yeah, that's fair. Botany was particularly big during the 19th century. See, that's um, my idea of hell. <laughs> prefer botany i think you're probably better at it than me i I, we kill plants in this house you're very good at keeping them alive i do one spring onion plant that's all i've done it does not make me a botanist and your herbs your herbs are doing well yeah some of them are okay okay never mind we won't speak (laughs) of them again back to beatrix back to beatrix she collected fossils and studied archaeological artifacts as well as entomology which is the study of bugs if you didn't know the less said about that the better (laughs) Yeah, and she continued to draw and paint specimens because, as we always like to say, practice makes perfect, doesn't it? You've got to hone mm-hmm. your craft. She was then drawn to fungi because of the beautiful colours that they have, but also sort of their fairy-like qualities, I think. There's a certain magic about wild mushrooms. Maybe no one else agrees with me. I'm just a big mushroom fan. Yeah, I don't know enough about wild mushrooms to judge other than... The cheap ones taste rubbish. True. <laughs> That's as far as my knowledge gets. <laughs> but I think another aspect of it was the beautiful colours that you find in wild mushrooms. She was very much into drawing and sketching different specimens, but the colours that she had to bring out by adding watercolour to her sketches produced a new challenge for her, which I think was quite interesting. Mm, that makes sense. <laughs> She later befriended a mycologist, which is the name for someone who studies mushrooms, called Charles Macintosh, who helped to improve the accuracy of her illustrations and taught her taxonomy, which is naming species. He also supplied her species to draw during the winter when she wouldn't be out on her holidays finding them for herself. That's really sweet, I think. I have to admit, I've never really thought of mushrooms beyond the context of their white or brown. I know that makes me sound really sheltered. I was really sheltered. Um, oh, don't like the outdoors. Might be a better way to put it. I need to take you on a little mushroom adventure. Wait, that sounds really strange. I'm talking about normal mushrooms, not magic mushrooms. She began to get more curious about how fungi reproduced and began drawing microscopic drawings of the spores that they released. 
That's like ultimate nerd. That is ultimate mushroom nerd. I like her. But I like that she's bringing in the creative elements of it as well. Absolutely. Very creative and very scientifically minded at the same time. Mm, Which is rare, I think. Mm. She developed a theory through doing this on how they germinated. Mm. She consulted with a botanist at Kew Gardens as she didn't believe the previous theory of symbiosis that people assumed was the way mushrooms produced before she came up with this theory. She managed to germinate the spores and prove that that's how it worked by generating new mushrooms through this theory. That's pretty cool. The fact that she was the first person to do that. Yeah, she, however, also experienced her first issue with sexism at this point. So her theories were rejected by the director at Kew Gardens because she was a woman. Because that means she knew absolutely nothing about what she was doing. Oh, yes, having a uterus makes me stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Regardless of this idiocy, she wrote up her conclusions about how mushrooms germinated and submitted a paper. So this is where the next instance of me not being able to pronounce things properly comes in. Her paper was called On the Germination of the Spores of the Agarincinae, which is a type of mushroom. (laughs) And it's almost definitely not how you pronounce it. Yeah, I'm not even going to try and pronounce that word. She submitted her paper to the Linnean Society, who studied natural history, evolution, and taxonomy in 1897. However, as she was a woman, she was not allowed to present the paper herself and read it aloud, or even attend the lecture where it was being read. It has to be read <laughs> by George Massey, who was also from Kew Gardens. That's it. I don't even know what to say to that. I don't even know why you're surprised. <laughs> Neither do I. I I kind of, a part of me is like, yeah, you know, that guy was really nice for um, stepping in and reading it for her, but it's like, was he just doing it to take the glory kind of thing? I don't know, because she ended up withdrawing the paper because she realised some of her samples were contaminated and continuing with her studies. So she she didn't give up. I don't think much really came of submitting it to the Linnean Society, but she took it away got some better samples and continued her studies on mushrooms what were they contaminated with do we know Uh, i just don't think they were suitable specimens to show the spores germinating and Um, scientific studies are all about making sure you can account for literally everything the tiniest thing can ruin the entire experiment exactly but she did not let that put her off she got on her studies and she continued drawing mushrooms some of the drawings that she submitted to the Armit Museum and Library shortly after are still used today to identify fungi. That's really cool. That's really cool because that's like, what, 120 years later? Exactly. They must be yeah. bloody good drawings. You can also see a collection of these drawings at the Perth Museum and Art Gallery in Scotland. Can we go when lockdown's over? Oh my God, yes, let's go. Do a road trip. <laughs> and obviously go to a house in the Lake District. Going there's always been on my bucket list. I've never we'll been, go I've never gone. they used to stay in the Lake District. Oh, yeah, that's even better. Anyway, anyway, mycologist WPK Findlay included many of her drawings in his book, Wayside and Woodland Fungi, which inadvertently fulfilled her desire to one day have her fungus drawings published in a book. Aww. <laughs> the Linnean Society issued a posthumous apology letter to her for the sexism she experienced in 1997. That's really nice of them. I mean, better late than never. It's better late than never. It's nice when people can learn from their mistakes. And Mm -hmm. I'm a forgiving person. I'm not. 
<laughs> As you maybe be able to tell from some of her other drawings, though, not just mushrooms, she was influenced quite heavily by fairy tales and fables and frequently studied various different book illustrations. I did also find out that she read Alice in Wonderland for the illustrations rather than the story. She wanted to have some cool technique. ones. They have some really cool ones. And I think um, it goes to show the importance of studying your predecessors when you're trying to do something. Because I have met some writers who don't want to read their genre because they're worried it will affect their voice. And I have to say, if you're worried something's going to affect your voice or even your art style, if you're an artist, then you're probably not advanced enough and you do need to do that studying. You I don't have... You, if you're worried about something watering down your voice your voice isn't strong enough to begin with because yeah i can see that i can see that yeah it, it hard truth but beatrix potter knows I she think gets she did it a lot of studying she did a lot of studying of other books and also she was drawing from a very young age she used to draw those pets i told you about the mice rabbits kittens guinea pigs cats. Um, she did love kittens there's so many cats in her books so many cats oh adorable that's how I ended up with Frankie. She was just too cute to turn down. <laughs> what what she was missing was more dogs because she could have brought in some serious Westie-tude into those pictures. <laughs> just think of the facial expressions that's, from that's painting a Westie. Missing. Can you imagine? I mean, she's famous anyway. Can you imagine how much more famous she'd be if there are Westies in the stories? Exactly. And trying to get the facial expressions of a white dog on a white piece of paper as well. I mean, that's skill. If anyone can do it, it's Beatrice Potter. Exactly. In 1890, she began designing her own Christmas cards with her brother and special occasion cards as well. Aww. And obviously these featured a lot of mice and rabbits. There's a pattern emerging here. I know. <laughs> her drawings were purchased by someone to accompany the poetry in his book, which I think is really cool. Definitely. You can uh, imagine the little mice and rabbits alongside some lovely poems about creatures and bits and pieces. In 1893, a printer bought more of her drawings to publish in various different books. And in 1894, she sold some frog illustrations for Changing Pictures Annual, which was a big annual full of stories at the time. The stories started out as little doodles on the bottom of letters that she would send to family and friends and children of friends, including Annie's son, her previous governess. Oh, that's really sweet. And I think it's worth putting into context the fact that the post went out a lot more back then, like mm. four times a day or more during Victorian yeah. times. Whereas exactly. now we're lucky if we get it once. Yeah, that's true. But Annie's son was quite sick and so couldn't leave the house much. Aww. And so she would keep him amused by sending him letters and little drawings and bits to entertain him. That's really but sweet. then in 1893, she started telling him the story about four little rabbits whose names were Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail and Peter. As much as this is ingrained in my head, I do wonder how you get from Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail and then go to Peter. It's so random. It's something I would do. Mm. <laughs> Have a, like a random character named like John. <laughs> this letter became one of the most famous children's letters ever written, of course. And then 1900, she revised it into a tale about rabbits and made herself a little dummy book. Oh. <clears throat> she initially pitched the book to six traditional publishers who all rejected her because of the size of the book. Beatrix Potter was dead set on having the book very small, small enough for a child to hold, which at the time was not a thing. That's really um, sweet. I really like that idea it's lovely it's it makes sense the publishers didn't like it because they couldn't charge as much for it 
I remember like looking at my books, which are over on the shelf down there, and they are still that size. They're really small. And I always wondered why they were that small. It never occurred to me. It was because they wanted to make a kiddie book, kid size yeah. book. So kids can actually hold it. And I think a lot of kids books these days are that small, obviously. And that comes from Beatrix Potter. That's so cool. Which is wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. But they didn't want to publish these teeny tiny books. And she, in the badass Beatrix fashion, refused to uh, compromise on her vision. Good honour. Mm-hmm. In 1901, a little bit later, she used her own savings to self-publish 250 copies of Peter Rabbit. Ooh, that's not a cheap thing to do. You know, we've done it and it cost, how much did it cost us? Maybe about 500 in total? Mm-hmm. And you have no guarantee that you're going to sell every one of those copies. Because 250 copies is actually a lot because most books don't sell more than 300 in their lifetime. Exactly. And that's in modern times. She knew what she was doing. She knew. She mostly sent these out to friends and family. Obviously, she knew a lot of other children who enjoyed her stories and now they could have an actual book that they could hold themselves. And Yeah, but all it takes then is that kid recommending it to a friend and it spirals. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Someone she knew called Ronsley recasts the book in didactic verse. And it made the rounds of other London publishing houses. Within a year, Frederick Warren and Co., who had originally rejected it when she sent it to them, became more interested following this. And they reconsidered buying the bunny book. (laughs) (laughs) They did swap it back to Potter's original prose. Good. And then in 2nd of October 1902, The Tale of Peter Rabbit was published, including her illustrations and, of course, was an immediate success. Of course. By Christmas, so bearing in mind that was October, by Christmas it sold 20,000 copies. That's mad. I mean, obviously more people read back then, but 20,000 copies in less than three months. More people read because they had less to do, but more of the population were illiterate as well. Yeah, that's a fair point. So I don't think there's that many more people that would have read back then. That's true. Since this immediate success, it has been translated into almost 40 languages, sold more than 45 million copies. Wowza, that's a lot of books. But it's nice that like children who don't speak English can enjoy these stories as well, because it is the illustrations and the stories work together. They do, and they're wonderful, charming little stories that are just great for kids to read. Following the immediate success of The Tale of Peter Rabbit, The Tale of Squirrel Nutkin and The Tailor of Gloucester were published in 1903. She continued to publish with the company, 23 books in total, which is roughly three per year over the next few years. That's good. That's really good. One of the big themes in the books is obviously animals, Mm -hmm. but I think a lot of the illustrations, you end up seeing how much she was influenced by the countryside she was living in. Totally, yeah. To the country in 1905, and you see a lot of the local areas in those books. I like it when writers do that, bring in where they live. It kind of brings the location to life in your head a lot more and almost turns them into a character in their own right. Absolutely. So in 1905, it was a busy year. She became engaged to a certain Norman Warren, which is why they were going to buy Hilltop Farm in near Sorry, which is in the Lake District. I also probably pronounced that wrong. Unfortunately, he died of pernicious anemia at age 37. Oh, Very unfortunate. But regardless of his passing, she continued to purchase Hilltop Farm. 
She used her income from the books and a small amount of inheritance she received from an aunt to buy the place, which is near Windermere. She was undeterred by her fiancé's death as she always wanted to live in what she refers to as that charming village. I really like her fortitude. The fact that even when stuff is just not going how she wants it to, she's like, no, I'm going to do this shit anyway and I'm going to do it my way. I can manage. It'll be fine. (laughs) It's very much the attitude my nan has. Like, oh, it's uh, something's gone wrong. Oh, brush it off. Off we go. I love it. it. I love that attitude. We need more of that. We do. Obviously, this was a working farm, so she had to learn how to farm animals, including pigs and cows and chickens. That's a lot of work. I know. And she added sheep to the farm later. We'll come back to the sheep. Don't worry. (laughs) Again. (laughs) Again. (laughs) Uh, Living in the countryside influenced her work a lot, as you can tell. You can see references to the area that she moved to in the tale of Ginger and Pickles and the tale of Mrs. Tittlemouse. In 1912, a certain William Hewis proposed to her. Mm. He was her lawyer, so he helped her to secure some of the land surrounding the farm. Oh, that's cool. um, Because she had a massive estate when she died, didn't she? Huge, huge estate. They moved to near Surrey and lived in Castle College and renovated the farmhouse on Castle Farm. Uh, the far- which is one of the farms Helis actually recommended she purchase to protect her land boundaries just a few years before when they met. Huh? Clever. <laughs> they married on the 15th of October 1913 in London, but she loved her country life, as you know. While she was living out in the country, she liked to look after her community. She established nursing trusts for local villagers and served on a lot of committees. Ooh, very active. Then, in 1923, she purchased a sheep farm in Troutbeck Valley and dedicated a lot of time to breeding and raising the indigenous Herdwick sheep, which is good. I don't know, I think that's really cool. She was helping the local indigenous mm. sheep. Yeah, she was massively <laughs> into conservation, wasn't she? Massively. Exactly. Yeah, in 1942, she became the first female president-elect of the Herdwick Sheep Breeders Association, but unfortunately died before she could take up the position. That's really crap. But it was just another thing that she was the first to do as a female. That's true. She was a trailblazer. She was. She was. As you said, she owned a lot of land. She was big on conservation. She worked with the Natural Trust to preserve not just the places of extraordinary beauty, but also those valleys and the grazing lands that would be irreparably ruined by development. She continued to buy farms and expand the breeding of different animals. She must have had staff at this point, surely. Well, yes, she had people helping her, but, you know, she was leading the way. I was going to say, that's a lot of work for one person. (laughs) With the money she made, though, she bought up huge areas of land for the National Trust. Mm, Which would then eventually be bought back off her, but she was sort of keeping keeping hold of it. She knew what she was doing. Exactly, exactly. I think the main thing we can take away is that Beatrix Potter's legacy is a lot more than just stories about rabbits. Although they are wonderful stories about rabbits. She changed children's books forever. She self-published in the 19th century because they wouldn't. she would refuse to compromise on her vision. She was big on conservation, helped breed and raise a breed of sheep that was not doing so well before that. She accurately researched hundreds of types of mushrooms and produced accurate drawings on them that are still used today. 
her stories have been made into films, of course, and educate and entertain children across multiple different countries. And there's just Peter Rabbit everything these days. <laughs> it's crazy to think that just one woman who originally self-published a book about rabbits has now, 100, almost 150 years later, 140, 30 years later, I can count, uh, <laughs> is still having memorabilia and stuff made with Peter Rabbit's face on. Like, you can get Peter Rabbit baby stuff all over. You can still buy her books, obviously. Her books have even been transferred onto Kindle, so you can read them digitally. Like, that's quite a legacy to leave behind. It is, yeah. And even, like, the Royal Mint have done Peter Rabbit collector's coins, for example, because I know a couple of people who've got them. And it's mad to think that this all happened because one woman couldn't take no for an answer. Yes, that's what we like. These are my favourite stories. I really admire that about her. It's like she they wouldn't let her do things her way because it was too different and it went too against the grain. Yep. And so she just did it her way. And I think that is a big thing about self-publishing exactly. is you do find some genres publishers won't touch or certain ways of telling a story and then something is self-published and it does really well. And no one's for out there. No, exactly, exactly. And obviously now it is important that you do advertising on top of just writing a really great book. But she obviously had the network at the time for what she was writing, which was a big part of it as well. Huge part of it. Huge part of it. Mm-hmm. She knew what she was doing. She was a very smart she woman. She what she was doing and she was not prepared to back down. And you've got to admire that tenacity and badassery. Oh, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> we like our badass women at Writer's Cookbook. We do. If there is any that you would like us to look into, do let us know in the YouTube comments or you can email podcast at writerscookbook.com or check out our Facebook group, which you can find at writerscookbook.com forward slash Facebook group. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay safe, take care, and we will see you next Thursday. Bye. Bye.